Hey, this is Beth Burroughs, the American Whiskey Ambassador for Beam Suntory, and you're listening to the Cast Chasers Podcast. Cheers, y'all. All right, Cast Chasers, for all you bourbon lovers out there, we have a special episode for you this week. Calling in from Louisville, Kentucky, our guest this week, Beth Burroughs, has many years of experience in the whiskey game and has spent the last four years as Whiskey Ambassador for Beam Suntory. In addition to her wealth of knowledge, Beth tells us about the challenges of being a general manager of a bourbon bar, her stint as a competition mixologist, and how she and the group Whiskey Chicks is working to break the perception that whiskey is a male-only industry. So grab your favorite bottle of Jim Beam, pour a dram and settle in. This is the Cash Chasers Podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Cash Chasers podcast. Thanks for downloading, rating, subscribing, and as always uh, for listening. We appreciate everybody tuning in this week, and we hope you're well and safe. Like we've done the last few weeks, we are uh, we're trying new things and we're adapting like everybody else. So uh, via via Zoom this time, we have uh, Bobby Bird on the line. Hey, Bobby. What's up, bud? How much, buddy? And Aaron Pross is over there. Hey, everybody. Good to hear you. Yeah. So good to hear you guys' voices because we, <laughs> we've been so removed from each other for so long now. It's, uh, it's great to, to get a chance to talk to everybody. And this, uh, everything going virtual is, is, is a challenge, but it's kind of fun too, well, you know? Well, Scott, you're complaining, but you're actually in the studio. Right. We're in <laughs> that's so, right. That's why, that's why my sound set is so amazing right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, but this week we have a great guest on the show, and we can't wait to get to this interview. You know, this guest is from uh, from Beam Tory. She's an American whiskey ambassador. She's been in the whiskey business for over seven years. Previously, a GM of, uh, of of a great bourbon bar and competition mixologist, which I can't wait to find out what that is. Uh, so, without <laughs> further ado, please welcome Beth Burrows. Welcome, Beth. Hey, y'all! Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, hey, Beth. So, Beth, uh, just curious, uh, you know what? What led you to the whiskey industry? How did this all start? Where Just take us back to the beginning of your journey. I mean, whiskey kind of was a happenstance. Um, I've been in the bar business for the majority of my life. My parents um, had a bar and restaurant when we lived in Western New York. So they ran a, a bar called Guitars and Cadillacs, where I was a um, bottle sorter for recycling and a, a great table busser. Um, and also food runner half of the time. Um, it led to me being really good at darts and really terrible at pool um, and knowing every beer distributor in Western New York. It was fantastic and slightly embarrassing uh, for my parents, but no, it was great. It was kind of like my first step into the business. Right. And so I kind of got to see what it was like for my parents to run a business for, um, you know, to see the restaurants and, and bars the way that they worked. And I kind of just never got out of it. So when I started my first job, I was a hostess and then I, I spent time in front of the bar, behind the bar, as a server, as a bartender, um, all the way up until 2013, when I took a job as a server at a bourbon bar that was opening up. So, from that bourbon bar, you know, tell what was the progression from there? I mean, did you was that is that the same uh, bar that you ended up uh, uh, running? Yes. So okay. I started as a server in 2013. Um, I became the assistant general manager a few years later. And then 2015 became the general manager mm, okay. before um, I stepped down to take the position with Beam Centauri. 
So how much of the uh, from the distribution side? I know you had mentioned you were you know, with the beer distributors. Yeah, you, know, you had a lot of uh, inch, uh, you know uh, relationships there. But it, uh, on the whiskey side, oh, I guess and the beer side, uh, we 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 have a few people in our group that are you know in the in the business. Um, is that really a competitive business? Can you give us a little insight of what that what those challenges are? My beer knowledge, especially like what I was just speaking to, I was like seven. So yeah, yeah, in all yeah, honesty, yeah. like literally I was just sorting bottles back to the gotcha. Um I just knew who who went to where. If that oh, makes yeah, sense. yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, more than anything. But after that, I mean, I really just uh I, I learned the business from a great mentor of mine, uh, Christian Hadamer, who was the GM when we opened up the bourbon bar that I was at. Um, and he was kind of the one that helped get me into whiskey, um, make me understand, gave me ways of working that allowed me to go from server to bartender to eventually being a GM. So tell us a little bit about being GM of a bourbon bar. I mean, there's got to be obviously a high level of expectation when you open a uh, a bourbon bar specifically. Uh, and, and so tell us a little bit about the, you know, where did the division come for the, for, uh, you know, the direction of, of that restaurant and, and progression of that? Well, it was the Alger Schooner Company um, is who I worked for. So they had kind of had this this great vision for the bourbon bar that also had a secondary as a delicatessen and a third as an ice cream shop. Wow. Um, so it was, it, was, <laughs> it was a very interesting kind of step into all of that and just to see how all of that ran. And it kind of evolved. I think what, what everyone expected it to be when it was being laid down in 2012 before it opened up in 2013 isn't exactly what it became because you never really know, right? It's just, it, it kind of takes on its own life, but it was amazing. When I left, I think we had over 175 bourbons, which is kind of a drop in the hat at this point. Um, but that was a pretty big deal and a pretty expensive list. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun and a lot of learning. It was pretty crazy to, to manage that inventory. And then we, we relaunched the deli at one point in time and I'm a, I'm a Yankee. So like deli was in my blood and who doesn't like ice cream. So I got to do some cool stuff there and work with some master distillers to create um, some, we called it distiller select ice cream. And we were able to infuse it with some booze and it was just fun. It was a lot of trial and error in all honesty. How hard is it to get uh, that many bourbons into one restaurant? I mean, do do you go out and uh, you know, kind of scout places that you want to get into the restaurant, or do you? Did you find that people were coming to you trying to get that bourbon in there? How do you? How do you amass that many bourbons in one spot? <laughs> we have great distributors, um, in all honesty, and and just having the relationships that I built with them, making sure that you you're just respectful to people. Sure. You know what I mean? Like I understand, I, I was able to understand this business and and know that supply and demand is a thing, and understand that you know, you have to be fair to everybody in every aspect and really just try to build those relationships with the distilleries, with distillers, if you can, with, of course, the the reps that are coming into your bar and you're spending every week with. Did you start out with that many or did was that a progression yeah. as the relationships build up? I want to say the first list we had was maybe a hundred and it may not even have been that much. That's like my shelf. <laughs> right. Like, and now I have three bars in my home. So really, <laughs> it was, but again, it was like 2013, right. It was just that, that bourbon resurgence was happening, but it was also happening a lot of, in a lot of people's homes more so than it was out in the world. And then all of a sudden there was just this massive boom of, of bourbon business that happened here with the, you know, becoming the Napa Valley of the South and all the tourism that came through and all the bourbon bars that opened. And, and now if you don't have a hundred bourbons on your back bar, can you even call yourself a bourbon bar in Kentucky? Right. <laughs> 
right. built an entire show around that exact mentality. So yeah, thank exactly. God. So you're, I mean, you're the whiskey ambassador for Beam Centauri. It's massive. I mean, Fred, no, he's a, he's a legend. What is yeah, definitely. Did that approach you? Did you approach them? Was it just a happenstance where you bumped into somebody and they're like, hey, you work at the best, one of the best distilleries in the world? I mean, what, what does that look like, that lineage? Um, so the, this job is kismet, I guess, is, is the best way to kind of describe it. When we talked about building those relationships, that was a huge, huge deal for me. Um, I, I like to form the friendships with people. <laughs> that sounds really silly, but like, you know, I, I do go into things trying to make sure that. I'm, I'm my most authentic self and that I try to form the, the best relationships and friendships that I can. And it happened that there were three positions. So you had your American whiskey ambassadors. There was an East Coast, there was a Kentucky, and there was a West Coast. Um, and then we had kind of our senior ambassador. And so the the person who was in the Kentucky position was moving to California to take the, the West Coast position. And I found out about that. I had a great relationship um, with with Beam Centauri, and and still do thank gosh. Uh, but it it turned into I, I fought for that job. I did everything that I could. It was five interviews, three months. Um, I got letters of recommendation from three master distillers. I was doing my best to uh, to do everything that I could to get this job. So it it kind of like came into my path, but it was definitely a whole lot of work to be able to to win it over, win everybody over. It's a lot of sweat and tears, but what a position to get. So I'm going to ask you, we're going to go down that road. I'm, I'm assuming I just got to know your favorite from the lineup, your favorite bourbon. I know, I know. We hate that Depends question. on the day, man. We really, kind of day we always having? try to avoid That's that question. That's the right answer. But, but <laughs> here I feel like it's, uh, you got to know. I mean, at this point, like we have a very expansive amount of American whiskeys. And not only that, I mean, we have great, Scotch, we have great Irish, we have a great Japanese portfolio. The Beam Centauri portfolio, I can never get bored. You know, even if I decide to go to gins or tequilas, we have an amazing portfolio there as well. Um, Baker's is always going to have a special place in my heart, if I'm being 100%, not only because I, I like that liquid a whole lot before I took this position, but also because my love for Baker Beam is human. Um, it just kind of lends itself to that. The 107 proof, the seven years old, seven's my lucky number. So I feel like I was just drawn to that at one point in time. Seven is only people's lucky number, but whatever. Um, it has to do with fifth grade cheerleading. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just a, it's a great liquid and it was kind of understated for so long. But last year with the release of the single barrel and, and now everybody knows just how amazing the liquid is. It's, it's been a, bittersweet journey because you want people to know about it and I love telling people about it but you also are just like but it's kind of our baby right so <laughs> um but Baker's is, is usually a go-to for me Knob Creek of course Jimmy Black huge go-to for me I've been sipping quite a bit of Basil Hayden while we've been in our our situation that we're in currently so yeah that, there's no bad stuff in the lineup there's there's no bad juice so which Basil Hayden is your uh your go-to just the just the bourbon or I was, yeah, 80, 80 proof is what I was doing right now. Um, but I do have some of the Caribbean Rye Reserve, a little bit of the, <laughs> you're shaking your head. Do you like that Caribbean Rye Reserve? Yeah. So um, my my wife was not very much of a whiskey person. And then like 
Bobby and I started this group and started leaning really hard into it. She started tasting some stuff and she liked the uh, Basil Hayden's dark rye. And I, I really like that one too. And I don't like rye. Me and me and Bobby are, we generally, if somebody asks us if we like rye, we say no, there are ryes we like, but generally we say no. So that was her go. That was her go-to first as sipping. And then she really liked a, um, an old fashioned made with it. And when I make an old fashioned with it, I call it Christina's old fashioned. Um, and then, uh, the, the Caribbean came out and I was like, Oh, let's get a bottle of this. And Holy smokes. I was like, wow, this is the stuff. Um, it's been probably about a month since I could find it around here, but I think we got maybe three bottles that we went through and we went through those quick. That is good. So, and just in general, rum finished stuff is just, it does something magical to whiskey. It does indeed. I really agree with that. And Blackstrap is phenomenal. Oh my God. And Makers is probably my, so we're Scotch people, Aaron and I, okay. and we came from that world. And I grew up in Texas, so bourbon was a big part of it, but I, I don't know, I just kind of winged away. And we've came in the past few years, we've really tried to bury ourselves back into the uh, bourbon world. I've always had fan, I was always, you know, Wes of Angels Envy, you know, obviously mm-hmm. family. There's, a, there's amazing people out there doing really cool stuff. You're part of these giants that are producing and at war. I mean, I hate to use the word at war because whiskey people really aren't at war, but I know, you know, Maker's Mark is, cha- you know, kind of against larceny, if that's the right word. Do you reach over the counter sometimes for something different? Are you allowed to even answer that? Are you? I'm, I'm definitely. It's, it's competitive analysis, if nothing else, right? I mean, if, if we don't know what everybody else is doing, how are we able to help people innovate? Um, how are we able to really assess trends, know what we're what we're up against, if you will? Like you said, it it is a competition because it's business, but it's not a competition so much in the fact that like we are necessarily against someone else. Yes, there's a lot of whiskeys that um, can be categorized together, and and people can really you know work their way through that and, and decide favorites. But it's really not it's not taboo, obviously, for us to to go across the enemy line. Um, when I start my new podcast, I'm saying competitive analysis. By the way, I'm using that term for everything I ever do. That's anti. So it's never, it's never going to be the right, the right phrasing for it. I'm you, it out of right. Right. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's always competitive analysis. Everything that you do, Can you? pouring yourself a cocktail at 1 p.m. Competitive analysis. <laughs> We're dry right now, which is we did this to ourselves. We um we try to be noble, and we thought, when's the best time? to tell people in our group to stop drinking the middle of an apocalypse. So we did this week thing where we just said, you know, it starts today. And I'm like, we have, we had two guests on today. Um, how are we going to do that? And so far, so good. We drank enough for everybody last night and Friday, but uh, by ourselves, of course. But anyway, um, I wanted to ask you something. I, I kind of did some, we dig, we dig, we do research. We want to know a little bit about our guests. What's whiskey chicks? So Whiskey Chicks is an organization um, that was started here in Louisville. And it was it was a way um, for Linda Rufinac is, is one of the founders. And she and her partners were just trying to find a way to make whiskey a little bit more accessible to females. A lot of times when, I mean, I'm sure you guys have noticed, when you go into the whiskey world, it is very male dominated. And so creating a, an organization that allowed for people to feel, women specifically, to feel comfortable. Um, kind of taking that that dip into whiskey and really creating a community 
that that everyone was able to feel comfortable in. So um, it was it was an organization that I've worked with along with Bourbon Women um, and some other great organizations that I've I've worked with across across all the years um, to just help bring women into the category and feel comfortable in the category because women have been drinking whiskey for a long time. Um, it's just a matter of getting those new fans into that space and in a comfortable environment. Women are a big and I'm married, Aaron, and one day for Scott, maybe. Girl. <laughs> our wives are significant others. And in our group, there are multiple women who are, you know. So I hear from my wife all the time. My wife, you know, she works for Diageo. She mm-hmm. really knows her whiskey. She knows what she's doing. And through this process, Aaron's wife really knows what she's doing. I've heard them in conversation with us people like us unfortunately men and it's annoying to be candid with you because you know they'll they'll i don't talk down a little bit so i love to bring that saying things like that i we say on the podcast on the show and um in our group all the time you want to learn the nose of a whiskey you want to learn a story about a whiskey ask a woman because I've never heard someone explain a whiskey like I have. Science, I guess you say, is a part of it. Your olfactor, the whole process, taste buds, ability to put a story with it is amazing. So thank you for doing stuff like that. That's cool. (laughs) On behalf of all women, you're welcome. Um, I think, you know, as as science says, women do have really um, fantastic tasting abilities. Um, or so they say, I I don't really know what to believe. I, I know what I can taste and what I can smell. And sometimes it's different. Sometimes it's the same. Um, but really, I think that the whole thing about it is it's finding that space. Because like you said, to hear people talk to females in conversation about whiskey is sometimes just the worst thing ever. Like at one point in time when I was behind the bar, um, I had a bunch of respected whiskey folk <laughs> record videos saying what I said. So that after I would say something and they would ignore me and ask my bar back, who was a dude, what he thought. And, you know, he would always be such a great job, such a great dude and and say, hey, you know, like she actually knows more than I do about it. I just eventually would pull out my phone and say, I'm sorry, which master distiller do you want to hear it from? Because maybe you'll understand if it's coming from, you know, who you think whiskey knowledge should be coming from. And I think it's gotten a lot better. I'm not going to say that it's it's 100% or great, but I think that the females that have come into the category, you're seeing, you know, amazing, amazing women in these roles leading whiskey business in a lot of these different areas. And so it's just a matter of time. It it was just the exposure, I think. And I was going to ask you, Beth, you kind of just alluded to it, but if you could kind of peel the curtain back from Beam Centauri and just give us a peek at what the landscape is there in terms of getting away from that male dominated field and how, what are they doing over there? I mean, we, I, I don't know the numbers specifically yeah. as to, to how many females we have, you know, working within our company. Um, I, there's a lot of leadership roles where there are females, uh, whether that be on, you know, the, the business side of things <clears throat> where we've moved some females into those roles and, and even females have, have, um, come in after them. Um, we have a female distillery manager in Claremont. So that's phenomenal. She's one of the most amazing people, hilarious super just very knowledgeable and such a, a joy to be around. Um, I've been able to listen to her, her speak Julie um, over the last little bit and just always am in awe. I mean, I'm in awe of all of the females that we have as leaders within my organization. And then again, 
the leaders that are female that we have within the entire whiskey category here in the U.S. and and abroad. Uh, have you have you had the chance to travel abroad yourself uh, to see uh, some of the other sites or locations? I got back from Japan um, right before all of this started. Ah. So um, I got to spend an amazing week plus in Japan traveling to Tokyo and Osaka and a few other places um, and, and visiting the distilleries that we have on the Suntory side, um, getting to visit the water refineries and things. So just kind of seeing the other side of of the coin of Beam Centauri. And it was amazing. The most memorable trip of my life, life changing. Amazing. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the Centauri side. Cause I've heard of uh, just, you know, incredible things that they, they have going on over there. And, um, you know, just, you could you just describe the little bit of that, that side of the, the world and their, uh, their brand. For sure. I mean, it's all about family, which is why I think Beam and Centauri did such an, an a great, Oh my gosh, an amazing job of integrating together. Um, because it is all about family. It's all about tradition. Um, everything that they do is with purpose and with drive and, and with the best intentions in mind. And so that was probably one of the, the most at comfort ease things about being over there. And then just efficiency and environmental, like making sure that their impact on the environment is as little as possible and that they're giving back more than they're taking out. Um, and I know that we all try to do that, but just the efficiency that they have at doing so, their their water sources, you know, and making sure that all of that stays purified. There's buildings that aren't allowed to be built over a certain height because it's going to take damage to the environment. I mean, there's there's so many things that they do that's just it's so purposeful and it's so cognizant of what is happening around them. Um, it's it's awe inspiring. Honestly, if you if you get a chance, I know that that sounds insane, but when all of this is over, if you have a chance to to go to Japan, I hands down. 100% recommend because it's just an amazing experience. Well, that's no, and that's great to hear because you know I feel like sometimes Suntory gets a little bit of a bad rap because they people see them buying up these, you know, uh, these companies or or uh, you know, partnering up and they kind of see them as a, you know, they're trying to take over everything and I don't think that's the case and sometimes I feel like they get a little bit of a bad rap. So it's it's good to see that perspective and uh and see that they're how much good they're doing for the business. I yeah, think Suntory go ahead. No, no, I was going to piggyback off that. I think, you know, when, um, when Fred partnered with Chinti from when they made Legion, I think when they, mm-hmm. when they first that. Yeah. I think that merger, we kind of saw what Japan was capable because I've, Japan's made great whiskeys and they've made bad whiskeys. There's this up and down ebb and flow. You know, they've, they had this little internal battle too. But I think that was the moment we all kind of woke up and saw Japan as, whiskey leaders in a way i think more mm-hmm. people see what they're what they're producing and what they're throwing out and they're doing amazing stuff i've lived in japan for a few years but it was prior of their whiskey evolution i wish i could go there now and to see what those guys are doing because it's, it's just really really cool stuff so lucky you for getting getting a chance to go there. Definitely, you, I, mean, I feel very lucky it was 14 that merger happened right 2014 ish 2015 yeah were you a part? Were you there? Like, you a part of that? I was not. Um, I want to say 2015. It was absolutely official. Um, 2016 is when I was hired on. I, I started July 2016. Very cool. Yeah. So I mean, in all honesty, in Japan, like you said, there were there wasn't the best whiskey at, at one point in time, um, and a lot of the whiskey took a took a hit for quite some time. And it wasn't until the highball cocktail happened 
And when that highball cocktail happened, the whiskey resurgence, it, it saved whiskey. It saved whiskey in Japan, in all honesty. Um, and to be able to see that culture, it, it's a whole culture. And, you know, it, you get up in the morning, you get on the bullet train, you can buy yourself a highball in a can. Um, everybody has either highball machines or handmade highballs. And it's, you know, mostly made with, with Toki or Jimmy Black, or um, they have a couple other brands over there, like Hoffman and things like that, that, that they're made with. But it's, I, I've, uh, my highball trip to Japan is, is what we're calling it because it was definitely an immersion into highball culture. Um, and I got to go with an amazing group of people that all work for my company. Um, we got to see the gentleman that kind of helped kickstart the highball in Japan was our leader. So, um, it was, it was a phenomenal trip and, and I could go on and gush for hours. I, I feel very fortunate. I think mixing, I think cocktails and things like that are kind of really important, obviously. We all like them, but they tend to start that trend, that domino effect of bringing people into the whiskey world. That's where I think we all start, um, either mm-hmm. a cocktail or throwing something back. So I, I think it's cool to hear that was kind of what brought it back to life because thank God they did because, what a, again, what an amazing country, what a, what's amazing whiskey. So kind of on that same in that same vein, uh, I have to ask you about competition mixology. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I hate those words so much, but I, <laughs> <laughs> nothing else that I can use to describe it. So first off, how did you get into that? Well, no, first off, what is competition mixology? So it's it's being a mixologist, which is honestly the bartender. I mean, really, it's a bartender that that dabbles in craft cocktails. Um, mixologist is for some reason a, a more respected term to the masses, it it doesn't mean anything necessarily different. You know, bartenders should be respected no matter if they are popping tops on on bottles of beer or if sure. they are, you know, smoking a glass and then giving you a terrarium of a cocktail. Like it doesn't matter. Everybody, you know, behind that bar should be respected. I, I every need aspect. a terrarium of a cocktail next time I go to a bar. <laughs> <laughs> there's some of them. Um there's a there's a bar in Nashville that I went to recently uh, that has like every cocktail is given to you and like this almost like little dreamscape of whatever essence they want you to to have while you're sipping that cocktail. I know there's some places in in Canada that do it as well. Um, But it's just mixology is a fancy term for I make crafty drinks. Um, And then I did a whole lot of competitions when I was working in the bar um, to just one. I love cocktails and I absolutely enjoy making them like, I want to be able to cook really well, but temperatures on the oven just screw me all the time. Um, so I don't have to worry about not, you know, burning something sure. if I am, am messing with cocktails instead. So my my stepfather um, is a is a chef, and I learned a whole lot about balance and flavor and things from him. Um, growing up, just kind of like watching him and you know him giving me a spoon and saying, "What's missing here?" So. Uh, it, it turned into a love of cocktails and a love of crafting cocktails for people. You know, there's really nothing better than crafting a cocktail specifically for someone that changes, you know, their life. And I know that sounds really crazy, but you know, you've had that cocktail before. Somebody made you a cocktail that changed your life, whether it got you into whiskey, whether it became your favorite cocktail. Um, you know, something happened where somebody handed you a cocktail at one point and you were like, you know, my life is never going to be the same after this. So having that, <laughs> that sounds crazy, yeah. but it's so true. Yeah. Um, and just, just having the ability to do that for folks has always been something that I really love. And, you know, giving people a proper old fashioned, like, highlight of my life. Well, you is, know, when you... <laughs> yeah. 
No, there's an interesting correlation there between you know uh, the the chef side and 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 the um, mixology side, but you know there is a palette. We talk about palette when we're talking whiskey and things, but I mean I'm sure there's a palette to mixing the the uh, the right drink too, right? There's, there's some of that that goes into it. For sure. I mean, you have to have a balanced cocktail. An unbalanced cocktail is is like college all over again, right? Like you you want to make sure that you have the right balance of of your acidity levels and you know your base spirit or whatever that might be, um, whether you're using whiskey or again, any of the other spirits that you might want to put in there. But it's, it's definitely a delicate balance of making sure that you have it all together, like cooking, but again, no temperatures needed. I, I, I love uh, just hearing you talk about it, Beth, and just being so real about, about the whole thing, because you you get people that are, you know, I, I, we, we, we have a whiskey group that we, run we're in other whiskey groups on like facebook and that sort of thing and just people for for lack of better term people can just get so snooty when it comes to right when it comes to whiskey when it comes to cocktails when it comes to this when it comes to that and i'm so glad you you brought it back to cooking because that that i i've had conversations where where that's we say hey you know if if my wife if my wife makes dinner my wife and i make dinner and we sit down almost every time we play a game of what does this need or what is this missing or, you know, what, what, what is it, you know, what, what, how would you like to see this different? And it's the same thing with cocktails. It's the same thing with whiskey. It's I, I like hearing people in the industry, just be more down to earth, more realistic than a lot of these people that, you know, oh, look at my giant collection of all this whiskey that I'm not going to open any of it and that sort of thing. So it's, I'm just always refreshed hearing people in the industry just talk so humanly about stuff. So thank you. (laughs) I'm not good at at not doing that. In all honesty, like I'm not good at, I I don't like the snooty side of things. You guys were talking about scotch earlier. I think that scotch was kind of, um, it had this persona for a really long time of being a little bit standoffish um, and not to scotches. (laughs) It wasn't scotch's fault. It just happened to create a community that seemed a little bit more snooty at one point in time. And I think that those walls have definitely been broken down over the, the last, you know, multitude of years. And I think whiskey's the same way. You're going to have the people that like to be, um, you know, American whiskey. You're going to have those people that really like to be, oh, well, let me tell you my collection and this, that, and the other. That's great. I've got a cool collection. I open bottles though. I mean, as Fred No likes to say, whiskey was made to be drank, right? So, and there's a few that I don't want to open up. Like I have Freddie's line of little book. I'm going to keep those and probably not open them. I, I always try to have a bottle to open and then a bottle to save. Um, because that, that and Legion and a couple other of the bourbons that have come out, bourbons and whiskeys that have come out since I started with Beam Centauri, just to kind of have a, almost like a little yearbook, a little archive, but whiskey was made to be drank and we're, we're going to mess up. We're going to do silly things. You know, we have to do trial and error. Like you said, with cocktails, you have to, yeah, I've made some really bad cocktails, y'all. I really have. <laughs> I just don't show them to people, you know? <laughs> It's part of the process, right? You know, it's 100% part of that process. So, you know, and then I've made cocktails that I, I love and have held on to those recipes for years and years and years because I, I personally really enjoy the cocktail. I really enjoy the process of putting them together. Um, I, before I had a job with Beam Centauri, I created a a Knob Creek Boulevard riff that I called uh, the Favre Danu, which just for a little bit of historical sake, the Boulevardier cocktail was created at Harry's New York bar in Paris. And five Rue Danu is the address of Harry's New York bar in Paris. So it was just a fun cocktail that I put together um, where I smoked a glass and I steeped the, um, 
the sweet vermouth with some red pepper flakes. And so it had like the spicy, smoky sweetness to it. And Knob Creek Rye was a phenomenal add to that. But just cocktails like that, that just, I spent a lot of time perfecting <laughs> and working through that I will carry with me forever. Um, and that's I, like, it's a, a fun passion behind it. I feel like obsession. you're, you're the, you're the master in this world. So I want to ask you, I'm curious. I've always been curious. You, we see, we see these guys take, you know, these really high end whiskeys and mix them with a Coke. And we all kind of went to it's your whiskey, drink it the way you want. And then you go to a bar and you get a, uh, fashion and it's it's made with well whiskey which nothing wrong with that either sometimes there's this there's this pivot point of where you want a good whiskey in a good cocktail because it's a good ingredient you know i can you know i had a i had an old-fashioned made with um i think it was weller 107 the the antique and it was one of the best old fashions i've ever had and some people would say why dump such a whiskey into a mix but i think it's an ingredient the well whiskey versus the high end whiskey mixer. Where are you on that, on that, um, on that spectrum? I mean, it just depends on, on what you're trying to craft, right? I mean, are you trying to craft something that's a little bit more cost effective? Cause there's nothing wrong with that, right. To do your, your well whiskey or something that's, you know, right, right above a well of the call. Um, I think that there's a space as well for the really great whiskeys that are perceived really great. Cause you know, some value, has nothing to do with greatness um, when it comes to whiskey. And I think that that's one of the most important things that we need to say. Like I never say something is cheap. I always say it's a great value because it's not cheap whiskey, right? It's just, we found a way to produce it, to have a mass production of it, to have more of it. It doesn't take as long to age, whatever it might be. doesn't mean that it's not great whiskey. It just means that it's more cost effective and a little bit more available than something like our, our limited time offerings that we come out with each year. Um, but I've had a cocktail with, like we were talking about Little Book a minute ago. It was a French 75 riff with Little Book. And it was phenomenal. Now, it, it could have probably been phenomenal again with like a Basil Hayden's too, but it would be a completely different cocktail or a Jim Beam Black and it would be a completely different cocktail. And so you're just, you have to, to decide what it is that you want out of said cocktail. I mean, if you're going out on a Wednesday night when the bars are open again and you know, you decide that you're going to have three or four and it's just there as a social sipping occasion. Cool. Sip whatever you want. If you want to go fancy at a dinner party and you want to go with a little bit more of that perceived high end whiskey and you know, your cocktail do that. I mean, really it's all up to the person consuming, like we're such individuals. And I hate the stigma that we put on folks to be like, you know, you have to be carrying this certain designer whiskey with you at all times in order to be considered, you know, it's, it's the word clout that the kids are using now, right? Yeah. Like to have clout in the whiskey world. Uh, <laughs> but, you know. It's, we'll we'll it's, tell you what TikTok is later, Bobby. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. I, uh, I, it's, I'm glad you said that because we, we say it all the time in our group and on our, we just had this conversation with a guest not too long ago. There's so many amazing whiskeys out there that aren't, you know, inflated or part of the, you know, secondary market or anything like that. I, you know, I've been around whiskey for a long time and I've seen whiskeys that weren't, that were everydays, you know, that were everyday whiskeys you can get off the shelf today. Good luck finding it or a whiskey that's in one part of the region is easy to grab and, and somewhere else it's not. And I respect markets and I respect mm -hmm. the flow and I appreciate high-end whiskeys that are you know, a lot of love. This, you know, the barrels were handpicked, the staves were handpicked. The, you know, 
master distillers are putting their, you know, their, their, their spin on these things. There's so many great whiskeys that are just mass produced that people turn their nose up to and they're really missing out on, on amazing stuff. So we try to do our part in showing people, like you're saying, just try everything. You know, sometimes I'll reach for a well whiskey neat just because yeah. Yeah, I want a well whiskey neat. I like that, you know, a little bite and young flavor, but, um, but that's and cool. And some people are putting great whiskeys in their well, you know, like, I mean, things that are perceived as, as calls or maybe above that make it into people's wells. Like ask, ask them what's in the well, you know, and either decide, yeah, I'm going to try it. Or maybe I've already tried that before. Give it a try. It's a well whiskey, right? Like it's going to be the most cost effective one that you can order on the menu. Try it. Decide for yourself. Don't look at it as something that's, you know, perceived as, as less than whatever might be on that back bar. Just, Make your own opinion. I think that's the biggest thing about whiskey is we we rely on so many other people's opinions. And that's great. Like I love reading tasting notes from people because some people are so much more articulate than I am, or they're they're so much better at coming up with that that storytelling or flowery language um that maybe I can't get across when I'm just like, it smells in my grandma's backyard when the rain happens on our flower. You know what I mean? Like, but that's sometimes what it is to me. <laughs> so some people, you know, are, are really good at that. So I think it's important that you see that. But I also don't think that you need to put all of your stake in what someone says. You know, you are your own person. You have your own tastes, your own likes, your own dislikes, your own experiences. And I think that it's important to go back. And it's important to go back and revisit. Because what you sipped on when you were 21, 22, 23 is not what you're going to enjoy in your 30s or your 40s or your 50s. Or maybe it is. But you need to go back and try. Maybe you didn't like something, you know, at, at 23 and you go back and, and try it at 43 and you're like, oh gosh, I didn't realize. One of my favorite things to do is to blind taste test people. Mm. Because I cannot tell you how many times Jim Beam Black has won out in a taste test and surprised the living everything out of people. I mean, it is it's a great value bourbon. Um, it's something that Fred and Freddie have on their back bar at all times that I have. It's in a decanter right now sitting on my shelf. Um, I love to craft cocktails with it. It's, you know, depending on where you are, anywhere from, you know, 22 to $26 a bottle and it's quality liquid. And so it's just fun. It's fun to blind taste test people and really just take away all of that perceived, you know, that preconceived idea about what they have and just say, okay, I want you to just sit here and taste because people get in their own heads and they're like, well, is it, is it maybe nobody ever really knows. I mean, some people have really discerning palates and that's super cool to watch. Um, but try it and see, you know, don't just pour them into canters and pour it out and, and taste that way or, you know, responsibly, of course, but just figure it out for yourself. You know, like I said, it's, it's cool to listen to people. It's, it's great to have, you know, a guiding force for you to, or people that you trust and trust their palates. That's why the single barrel programs are so amazing in a lot of these places because we trust the palates of the choosers. But that being said, you're your own person. So you definitely need to, to try it out for yourself. That's why we try to avoid um, the uh, rating system, too. I mean, we have our own. We say, would we steal this? That's kind of our joke. <laughs> um, but the five-star thing sometimes or the rating system, and I appreciate some of them. You know, some there's some you know, Murray's out there telling us what's the best and what's not the best. Which Duncan I Taylor. Yeah, Duncan Taylor, five-star. They put it right <laughs> on their bottom. Uh, we're just doing the McAllen, the, the number five, which got terrible reviews awful awful reviews and i think it's fantastic so to your point sometimes it's just this 
just enjoy it. We're also, I'm really concerned about how well you're doing right now. And Aaron and I should worry about our jobs. Hopefully Scott doesn't fire us and bring you aboard. So you're not, <laughs> right. not, not taking notes like Bobby should say more stuff like that. So <laughs> I'm here to be a friend anytime. I promise I won't take your job. Full book of what Bobby shouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> I live in a world of editing. It's just yeah. fine. Yeah. Oh, I love I love that you guys can edit things because when it comes to like live, man, I did an Instagram live the other day and I was just like, I don't even know what I said at this point. Like I don't even <laughs> they went fine and they were friends that were doing it. But you know, sometimes you just do it and you're like, Oh, what did I what? Yeah. I just talked for an hour. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right, Beth. So I, I hear you have a, an interesting story about meeting uh Fred No for the first time. So when I was about sixteen years old. My parents decided that they wanted to go to the Jim Beam Distillery. We had moved to Kentucky um, from Western New York. And it was just kind of like an excursion that they wanted to go on. And of course, you know, being a 16-year-old, I was like, oh, why are we going to this place? Um, and so it wasn't until recently that I had thought back about this experience because somebody had asked me the first time that I had met Fred. And I realized that when I was 16 years old, my parents did a tasting with Fred No inside of the Beam home on the property, um, Fred No gave them the tasting in what is now his office. Whoa. And I was, you know, a terrible 16 year old. It was just like, Oh, I can't believe I'm here. Why am I here? But now that I think back on it, I'm just like, how crazy. Cause it was before we had the American still house. It was before we had really like the big tour that tourism was really happening. So, um, you know, we got this very exclusive, our parents got this very exclusive tasting that I was, you know, there to watch from Fred No in his office. Some some while ago, we won't give my age away. Um, <laughs> from, from, from years ago, oh, <laughs> smattering of years ago. I'm kind of mad at 16 year old Beth. Not just Dude, I'm mad. At, I'm mad at 16 year old Beth all the time. Don't worry <laughs> about it. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Um, but no, I thought that, that it was one of those things like that. The idea that like Fred uh, was one of the people that wrote my letter of recommendation for this job. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of things that it shows me that I'm exactly where I, I'm supposed to be, where I need to be. I have a passion for whiskey, but I have a super amazing passion for, for Beam Centauri and all the, the production that we have. So it was meant to be. Kismet. Fred wrote me a letter, too. Well, Fred's lawyers wrote me a letter. <laughs> the cease and desist? Cease and desist, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about Fred No just so I can watch Bobby get more and more jealous? This is great. I love it. <laughs> we'll just have to get you guys to meet him. He is a cool guy. When all this is over. Yes. Right now he is at his lake house by himself. So <laughs> we are. And I mean people just love him, so they were trying to stop by the house and stuff and he he needed that that space away. So he's doing well. We're checking in on him. Checking in on Baker. Uh, Fred and, and Kay just had their anniversary yesterday. They had a little drive-by anniversary party from their family next to their house. Super adorable. So they're doing what they can. They're still producing. They're still Freddie's still working. So it's awesome. I didn't want to. I hate to be this guy. I'm just. I'm a. I'm, be I this geek, guy. What is it? I geek out. Fred, no. Tell me. Amazing he's, man. Tell me that. Thank you. I, I know you have to, but I just, I, I want to know these people are cool, amazing, and awesome. Because there are heroes. We don't, there are celebrities. We want to meet them. Every time I meet them, whether 
it's you know small town local or or big i i drain i try to take as much knowledge as i can from them i mean you i hit you up on facebook just i just wanted to talk to you because i saw your post and everything you knew your knowledge i just had to get you on the show but i also wanted to know what fred was like in real life and well, first and foremost, I don't have to say anything. I promise. Like nobody's like holding holding me to a certain, you know, opinion of people. Um, but I will say that the No family is their family to me. I absolutely adore every single person in that family. Fred, his wife Sandy, Freddie, his wife Kay, their kids, um, you know, their animals, everything. Like they are just the most down to earth people who are, you know, just here to make whiskey the way that their family made whiskey. You know, everything to them is tradition and family and everything that we do goes back to the tradition of the family. Um, you know, family values are a huge deal and making sure, I mean, if you guys have watched anything when it comes to Fred or Freddie, when they're talking about, you know, new launches, whether that be, you know, single barrel programs that we've done or, or Freddie's little book or any of the stuff that we've come out with, it's always about what we've done for a long time. And that's make whiskey. We are, we're celebrating 225 years of making whiskey this year. Mm. Like that's unprecedented. Nobody else can say, you know, that, and I, I'm so bad at like the great, great, great. I can usually do it within like a couple of years, a couple, you know, steps of lineage, but you know, Jacob Beam started this and laid down his first barrel of whiskey in 1795. So, you know, we are, we are celebrating 225 years of just, family tradition and it's really you'll be very hard pressed to find another family that's able to say that they have done this and i mean we stopped for prohibition because we didn't get a license to be medicinal and we tried our hands at a couple of different things you know that's the claremont distillery that we have now started out of limestone rock quarry and that's what we did during prohibition to to try to withstand you know that downtick in whiskey production so that when we came out of it on the other side we were able to continue that family business and do it all in a legal way. Um, which I think is, is super amazing. I mean, yes, the idea of medicinal was, it's so cool. And to see the old medicine bottles and stuff is absolutely amazing. But the fact that we tried our hand at so many different things during that time and, and realized, you know, whiskey was, was our, our lifeblood and whiskey was, you know, the destiny of that, the beam family. And even though you see that transition over of, of beam to no, it's still the same family. And I do want people to understand that. Like we just had a, a place where like T. Jeremiah didn't have any children. So he passed it over to his sister's son, which is where Booker steps in. So he happens to have a different last name because his mother was married to a no. And that's where that lineage changes. Um, so it's all one family. It's all one dream. It's all, you know, the recipe that we've been working with since prohibition and the yeast that we caught well we i say we i had nothing to do with it um but they oh, are like my family <laughs> picture you but, with a you know yeah just just me and jim beam in his backyard just catching yeast wild wrangling. yeast um <laughs> but he really did he caught that that wild yeast in his backyard and that's what we have been propagating ever since and we propagate live yeast you know we are we're doing all of these things that are so based in tradition and maybe they're not the most effective way to produce the mass amount of whiskey that we're doing because we could be using a box yeast and there's nothing wrong with a box yeast. Okay. People are using it and producing amazing whiskeys, but that's just not the way of the bean family. So, you know, is it the easiest thing to propagate yeast? 
No, I've watched people do it. It's a dirty process. And it is such, it's almost like a spiritual process to the people that do it because it's so rooted in the tradition of what we've done. Um, so it's the family. I went on a tangent here, but like the family in and of themselves is an amazing group of people that are incredibly passionate about preserving their family legacy and creating great whiskey moving forward. I mean, it's, it's all about, you know, respecting the past, but preparing for the future. That was awesome. <laughs> Did you get that out of your system, Bobby? Are you good yeah. now? <laughs> All right, see ya. Yeah, <laughs> he's got what he needs now. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's what I was looking that's for. One of, them. one of them. Yeah, these big distilleries, you know, they. Um, I think sometimes people think they just become these mass producers of this mm-hmm. product, and uh, I, I like to tell people they're, they're they're still doing the they're doing it bigger, but they're still doing the same way they did before with the same passion and love and. I think that's just, I think that's awesome. I'd like for people to understand that craft is a word that we use a lot that a lot of people associate with small Mm -hmm. and craft doesn't necessarily mean small craft means that you pay attention to every detail. And because we are such a large company, we have the ability to pay attention to every single detail. We have, you know, scientists that I call the white coats on the Hill um, that live in our global innovation center that do all of these tests to make sure that, you know, the whiskey that we're putting out is every bit of quality that we need to be And Freddie and Fred sit with them and make sure that, you know, every step of the way that they have the approval in the process, like they are definitely going to sign off on anything that we put out in market. So, you know, it's, it's a process with a lot of people. And if you've ever been to the distillery, you've probably seen the the Global Innovation the Hill, they have, you know, right on the bottom line, we have another lab that's there to test quality. And I mean, we just, we have somebody that's able to look at every step in the process. And so craft as a whole just means paying attention and and doing it in the, the most detailed way possible. It doesn't mean that you're small. Small can be craft, of course, but don't, don't write off the big guys as, you know, just mass producers with, you know, no appreciation for for the craft of it all because some of the big producers are the craftiest of the the crafty very well said very well said. <laughs> uh you know lastly i just have to ask you so as, as a brand ambassador um obviously you have a uh, especially uh with with uh beam sensor you have a long line of uh products that that you, that you guys have but as, as an ambassador when you're out there and you are trying to you know open the window like you just did for us uh, to the brands and then the things, the great things that the company is doing, you know, how do you as an ambassador make that your own? One, I think that as soon as you become part of the beam Suntory family, it's family. It's no longer yours, mine out. Like we are one family. We are working together to create a, I mean, it is a business. Don't get me wrong, but we're, we're working together to create family within this business. And it's just, it's more about, that aspect of it than anything else. And so like you become a part of Beam Centauri, you are now a part of it. I didn't have to do anything to like make it my own because it's now a part of me in in every sense of the word. Like you ask if I go off brand, I can and I do it for research purposes. But most of the time I'm gonna be sipping my own liquid. You know, I'm going to be looking at that vast line that we have in front of us. And like I said, I can go tequila, I can go gin, I can go Irish, Japanese, whatever it is that I want to do. I can go into like anything that I want to 
and have great quality product. And I know that. And there's ambassadors for all of those other brands as well who have become, you know, we're inseparable. Like we have been on Zoom calls and house parties and checking in on each other because it's not just about the business as a family. Um, so I think there's that. And then there's the aspect of talking about it and like how you talk about whiskey. I don't like to be snooty. We, we kind of established that like that's something that I really want to take away from the whole idea of whiskey being anything towards snooty. And of course, there's going to be people that like to do it. Totally fine. That's them. Um, and they're not trying to be snooty. I know that they're not. They're just, they have a refined sense of, of the way that they do things. I'm going to be myself. Um, I'm not always super refined. I'm like distilled twice. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I went through a doubler. That's about it. Um, but I talk about whiskey the way that I talk about people. When I talk about the Kentucky hug, which is what you're feeling, you know, some people say burn, I say hug, because burns are bad and hugs are good, right? Some are just going to hug you a whole hell of a lot harder than others. So I talk about like that feeling of the Kentucky hug, like an actual hug, because most people have been hugged. If you haven't, I'm really sorry. Come see me. I will make sure you get your first hug. Um, no more hugs. <laughs> look, when this is over, I'm hugging everyone. I don't like everyone is getting hugged. But for now, I'll, I'll settle for my Kentucky hugs. But those hugs, you know, it's an easy way for me to explain it. Like, is it a hug like you saw somebody yesterday and you're still happy to see them, but it's more like a pull in, flap on the back kind of hug and then it goes away? Is it I haven't seen you for a week? Is it I haven't seen my sister in a year? And, you know, that hug that just lasts forever at the airport, you know, where we're just not going to let each other go. And eventually, like, you think that it stopped and then you hug again. You know, it's just it's a way for you to speak where people can visualize exactly what you're talking about and then internalize it to what it is that, that they're doing or feeling during that tasting. Um, and I talk about whiskeys like they're people. Um, my predecessor came up with a program that we've now dubbed Bourbon is my Bay to be as inclusive as possible. And we talk about the whiskeys as if they're real people. And, you know, we get feedback from men and from women that I absolutely just adore. The first couple sips that we take, people are, kind of questioning the methods and the madness. And then by the third, you know, third or fourth sample that they're tasting, they're like, you know what? Booker's is a cowboy, you know, <laughs> and I give them a tasting mat with a bunch of faces on it. And and we kind of just talk through what it is, you know, characteristic wise, you know, is this a little bit soft, a little bit more romantic? Is it a bit more, you know, aggressive? Is it sweet and a little bit playful, you know, and, and you can talk about your whiskeys that way. And then you have a personality. And you can decide what personalities you mesh best with. And then flavors, of course, and, and profiles. But it's a, it's a way for people to feel more connected because we want to be connected with people. It's a lot easier. We've been doing it for a long time, you know, to connect with people. So that's just, that's my own personal take on it. Um, if you were a whiskey, what would you be? If I was a whiskey, what would I be? Ooh, that's a good question. One Nobody's out of ever all. asked me that. I think I would have a higher rye content. Like if it was part of my portfolio, I would be OGD bonded, maybe 114 on a good day. Like I feel like <laughs> that's me. Um, but every now and again, I'm a bit in the creek. I can be a little bagel Hayden. I got a Booker streak in me. You know, it's it's just a. Uh, I'm a little bit of everything. Sounds like a Waylon Jennings <laughs> song. <laughs> Which is totally appropriate that's for right. a Beam Centauri lineup. <laughs> All right. Well, Beth, we uh, we really appreciate you calling into the show and uh, giving us a window into Beam Centauri and the, the uh, amazing things going over there. So thank you very much for coming on the show. 
I appreciate y'all having me. Well, I can assure you that when all this is over, we are all looking forward to our first Kentucky hug. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Cash Chasers podcast. And thank you to Beth Burrows and Beam Suntory for being on the show. Be sure to show your support by heading out and picking up your favorite bottle from the Bean Suntory line. And when you do, be sure to share with us what you picked up. You can reach us on all social media at Cash Chasers or send an email to podcast at cashchasers.org. Also, be sure to check out our Cash Chasers Facebook group for all of the virtual events coming up, including our exciting mixology sessions with Beth herself. For now, remember, Cash Chasers, it's not about finding the perfect dram. It's all in the chase.